How's it going? It's going well. Sun's out. I'm happy, man. The sun is out in Ketchikan, but didn't you have like a massive blizzard with 80 mile an hour yeah, again? And, uh, <laughs> again, and it uh, looks like we got another couple coming at us. So that's it's Alaska, man. Yeah. And uh, how has this winter been compared to others? Wet, colder, wetter? Mm, it's just, you know, it all blurs together, man. Uh, it's it's got like the last 38 years of my life. <laughs> right. Well, no. uh, open your door just for a second. I want to hear what it sounds like out there. <laughs> there, there, did you hear that? Yeah, yeah. But hey, you had an exciting time this last week. I did, man. I you, did. Uh, you got you got away. Where'd you go? Well, my son and I, we drove to Death Valley, camped there one night, saw the sights, went to the lowest point in North America, 282 feet below sea level. Wow, the lowest point. Uh, at, at bad water. Uh, there's a big alkali dry lake there and a boardwalk you can walk on. But the cool thing is when you're standing there and you look up at the uh, the, the cliffside, there is a mm -hmm. little placard that says sea level. <laughs> and being scuba divers, Carson says, oh, Dad, this is lower than we've ever been on planet Earth. And I went, oh, you're right, because I, I think of the deepest I've ever dived was 120 feet, and he went somewhere close to that. So here we were. Below sea level Below in California. Level in California. Wow. And of course, uh, at that site, they showed the other eight or nine places on the planet. And mm. the lowest place is the Dead Sea. Wow. That's another, wow, deep yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's an ocean, there's a sea there. Correct. Makes sense, I guess. Yeah, correct. But there's places in Jordan and all, all, over, the, all over the world, uh, South America as well. Did you go fossiling when you were out there, man? Um, Did you find anything? Yeah, we we wanted to go fossiling in Death Valley, but uh, everything was closed. We couldn't find the rangers in order to talk to the right, right. person. Right, and you you actually can't collect fossils in a no, national no, park, no, you right? Can't you can't observe, them. look at yeah. them. You know, so that's cool. But so, uh, so, so what'd you do outside of the park? We went to the Argus Wilderness Area, which is the valley to the west of Death Valley. It's called Searles Valley. S-E-A-R-L-E-S. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I saw on the Mancos app, which if you don't have, is an amazing app. It shows you in North America. I don't know if it's in Canada as well, but at least the... No, it's global, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. it doesn't work in Australia. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, it works in Canada. Yeah. In North America, any place you stand, it shows what geologically is under you and all the research papers associated with identifying that strata. So I saw that there was Devonian marine limestone Ooh. and it was oh, this yeah. outcropping uh, a mountain about the size of your deer mountain there in ketchikan so it's pretty big but pretty small when you look at the planet and it's surrounded by volcanics so i thought mm -hmm. how is this devonian chunk how is the seafloor just in the middle of all these volcanics well that is basin and range country and basin and range country is the entire western united states is spreading and what happens is these huge blocks of mountain ranges basically thrust up because they, they're blocks. They basically tilt because they're being mm -hmm. jumbled. And the valleys spread and sink. So you have basin, ah. range, basin, and range. 
basin, like a basin. Correct, like okay, a wash like basin. Okay, like a kitchen. Yeah, okay, yeah. I get it. Yeah, I get and it. And so from the, the dirt road, you can see it is the colors of that kind of grayish, greenish limestone with these folded bands of strata. Mm -hmm. I was hoping to find fossils there, but it was really heavily metamorphosized and tons of pressure. So it's been cooked. You, you didn't really find a lot of good stuff. It's been cooked a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's been cooked. And uh, But we did find this amazing shack where... A shack. Uh, it, it's an old superintendent's mine shack from the Minietta Bell Mine, which produced millions of dollars of silver bullion for something like 60, 70 years, starting in 1876. Wow. So this shack, we went in, and it is completely filled with anything you'd want out in the desert. There is cleaning supplies. There's a card table. There's bed, a place for cots. So it's like a little house, a little cabin. In, exactly. Uh, down this it's a little cabin, and it's and the sign says, take what you want, leave what you can. Dude, this sounds like a scary movie. You should don't it, stay there. Don't stay no, there. Dave. It was brilliant. No. It was brilliant. There was cleaning supplies and toilet paper and really? paper towels and cans wow, of beans nice. and um, cool. explosives. There was tannerite oh, in there. Just, yeah, just in case. Yeah. Ah. but the place <laughs> is littered with mining equipment everywhere. It was absolutely wow. a fantastic. We didn't sleep in the house. We slept outside under the stars. Ah, wise move. Yeah, good. Good. Any scorpions this time of year out there? Rattlesnakes or anything? No, it's too early. Too early. Uh, we're recording this in late February, and uh, the desert pretty much comes alive around Easter. That's when the flowers bloom, the snakes come out, and the scorpions say hi. <laughs> you know, we don't have to worry about things like uh, scorpions and snakes up here in southeast Alaska, but there are these big mammals that, you know, eat you every now and then, but... Well, that's cool. You had a real adventure, man. That's great. You and Carson got out into, uh, it's so cool. You just leave uh, that whole craziness in Southern California, Los Angeles, and drive, and you're just out in the desert. Yeah, it was beautiful. It's startling, uh, we're it? out in the desert. We went to the Trona Pinnacles. I don't know what that is. 500 spires of calcium carbonate rock that was once underneath a huge 1,500-foot-deep lake. And so you're driving at at the bottom, what this once was a lake, and there was geothermal action, and this stuff bubbled up. It's created these huge, almost stalagmites, giant hmm. spires, some of them 40, 50 feet tall, and as big around as a house, and it's quite impressive. The Trona. What's the big uh, salty sea that's out that way? The big flat sea. The Salton that, Sea is way out the by Salton. Palm Springs. And that is another place that is below sea level as well. Oh, that's okay. one of the below sea level areas in California it has two. Well, yeah, I've been there once upon a time. Kirk and I went there on our way to Anzo Borrego, which is a great place. But you know what's site, great is but, that uh, there's all yeah. these seas that no longer exist, like the great Eocene uh, one up there in Kemmerer, Wyoming, where we get all those fish and the fantastic uh, ancient lake well, bed fossils. Those are 50 yeah, million years beds, old, yeah. right? Yeah, That's yeah, 55 yeah. million? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep, yep, you got it, man. Do you want to keep talking about seas? <laughs> oh, wait, there's a segue there. Yeah, there's a thing called epicontinental seas. Ever hear about those? No. These are seas that actually go right across an entire continent and... Today's guest 
is an expert on epicontinental ah, seas. We're talking about an inland sea, right? Yeah, in North America, it was it just divided the entire continent. We were once really, truly divided. So there was a tr an entry and an exit on on both the southern and northern yes, parts. Yes, yeah, you could go you could go from the Gulf of Mexico and sail on up to the North Pole. Oh, and what was that sea called? What's that sea called? That was called the Western Interior Seaway. W I S. W I S. WIS for short. And our guest today is an expert on the ecology and and the life. A paleoecologist. Her name is Laura Wilson. Shall we call her up, Dave? Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. Call her. Hey, Dave, meet Laura Wilson, paleoecologist, curator of paleontology at the Sternberg Museum of Natural History and associate professor of geosciences at Fort Hayes State University in Kansas. Laura, it is great to meet you, although I think we met briefly at an exhibit I had at uh, your wonderful museum. We did. I kind of I cornered you just to make sure I said hello when you were there for the exhibit opening of, of Prairie Oceans pre-COVID times. <laughs> so, yeah, back in the before times. Great to finally meet you. And this is my my buddy, David Strassman, who Whoa. is uh, an entertainer. Well, thank you. I won't be entertaining, just asking questions today. And my first question, Laura, it's a pleasure to meet you. Are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd, yes. I have all of the different <laughs> definitions on the Venn diagram you see for, for what makes you a nerd. <laughs> well, let's hear it. So, well... Yeah, tell us about that. How did you come to your paleo nerddom? Um, my gateway into paleo was actually sharks. Um, I'm I'm ah. from Georgia, and so I grew up, and we would go to the beach during the summers um, as a family. You know, I was probably four or five. My dad and I would wake up really early and go to the beach and hunt sharks' teeth. And I didn't oh, I didn't wow. even understand at the time that they were fossils. I just loved the sharks' teeth, and we would watch. Um, Discovery Channel and Shark Week back when it had Shark a Week. lot of good science on it versus some of the sensationalism you see. <laughs> and it just really clicked. No. And I wanted to be a, a marine biologist and specialize in sharks. And I remember, you know, watching the documentaries with Jacques Cousteau and reading about Eugenia Clark, the shark lady. And that was what I wanted to do. So all of my projects in third and fourth and fifth grade were were about sharks. As I got older and I read different things, I started reading about the idea of extinct sharks. And that was my, my introduction to extinction and the idea that they were animals that used to be alive and are no longer alive and how we knew about that. And that coincided in seventh grade when I took my first earth science class. And we took a semester of, of earth science in junior high. And just I fell in love with the rocks and the idea of deep time and earth's history and I am 100% part of Jurassic Park generation. So that also then coincided uh, with the release in 93 of the first Jurassic Park movie. Life finds a way. And it just kind of all coalesced into moving from modern marine biology to extinct animals. And the interest from paleo really kept there, probably to my parents' dismay. They've always been very supportive, but I'm sure they figured I'd grow out of um, a fossil and dinosaur obsession at some point, but um, luckily well, I've been able to support myself. We're very glad you didn't. 
We're glad yes. you didn't grow out of that. <laughs> well, yeah, your undergraduate degree, which you got at Washington Lee University or college, university. I guess, in uh, university. And you ended up in a T-Rex quarry somehow. I, I mean, that sounds like Where's a dream that? come Where's true. Where's Washington there you Lee? Are. So Washington and Lee is in Lexington, Virginia. So it's in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley. Gorgeous area. Um, and... It was, it's funny because my brother, I have a brother who's three years older, and he, I went with him when he went on his college visit, and he wanted to play baseball. He took one look at the baseball field and was like, okay, I'm going to go somewhere else. I took one look at the campus and just fell in love. And so I had two goals in college is I wanted a geology degree, and I also wanted to play lacrosse. And so I played lacrosse through college. It was oh. division three. I knew I wasn't going to play D1 lacrosse. And so that was the combination, but it didn't have a paleo program. I think our geology faculty was four, four faculty members. Wow. Um, towards the end of my sophomore year in college, I actually sent an email to an old high school teacher. So there was a, a retired or a, a petroleum geologist who retired into physical science teaching in junior high and high school levels. And he did a summer field geology course that I took when I was in high school. Um, and so I emailed him and I told him, I really want to get field experience in paleontology, make sure that I know what I'm getting into and that this is what I want to do. Do you know of anybody who accepts volunteers or, or workers to work with them? And so that was, I guess, spring of 2001, which was in the continuation of the Jurassic Park generation when Jurassic Park 3 uh, was getting released. <laughs> And so dinosaurs were back in the limelight and Jack Horner, who was the technical advisor for all of the, the Jurassic Park movies, mm -hmm. there were articles about him and his association with the, with the movies. And so Jack's name in the Museum of the Rockies was one of the names his teacher gave me. So Whoa. I shot off an email to Jack, who then told me to contact this other person. And essentially, you know, I volunteered my time and willingness to do physical labor. Um, and and that's actually how I got hooked up on my, my first crew with the Museum of the Rockies when I was an undergraduate at a different institution in Virginia. What people don't really realize is how hard it is to be out there in the field. So what's a typical day like on a Tyrannosaurus Rex dig? It's not glamorous, is it? It's not, but I will also, where we were in kind of the heyday of, of Jurassic Park, it's not typical because, you know, there were executives from Amblin coming in as part of this to kind of gear right, up the release. Right. So, so there were luxuries that you probably don't have in your typical dinosaur dig. Um, and then there's <laughs> yeah. also a difference between, so that summer, so summer of 2001, I was at our main campsite, which would have like 40 people and film crews and interviewers in it at any given point. And that was exciting and very different. <laughs> so this dig was really associated with the release of the film. It wasn't just because no, it was Jack Horner. I think it's just because it was Jack Horner. I mean, it, there was still right. a lot of yeah. good science. So this was kind of the, first, the end of the first iteration of the Hell Creek Project, which is kind of this big synthetic pro project right. of, of trying to look at diversity and abundance in addition to the individual animals. And so there were PhD students and graduate students and other researchers out there doing sedimentology and paleobotany and paleontology um, for doing the science of it. But then there was also 
the the part that was associated with the release of of Jurassic Park. We had Jack Horner on. He was talking about those crazy heydays. But he said of, that know, uh, all those people out George there. George Lucas funded part of the Hell Creek right. project. Mm -hmm. So it's that whole yeah. Hollywood Jurassic Park machine kind of helped. But I I'm betting that. It's not quite as glamorous when you're out digging in the old Naira Brara formation, is it? Uh, well, even then, Lauren? yes and no. So definitely not. I mean, we don't have <laughs> film crews and we don't have George Lucas and, and, and Universal Studios money yeah. pouring in. But we're also not as remote. So as, so as remote as Western Kansas sounds, you know, when I was in Eastern Montana, you know, the, the closest town was still going to be miles and miles down a dirt road. And that town is, you know, 400 people. So there's a grocery store. There are two bars, of course. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, not, not a whole lot, maybe like a hotel where we'd go to take a shower. Um, here, I'm, I can get to my field sites. Like if I'm in, in Gove County in the trucks, you know, I could get to my field sites in an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. So there is the ability to do day trips versus, you know, we're going right, to go out right. for months and, you know, you're staying in tents and, and showering once a week, doing laundry once a week. So it's a little bit different of a setup. And it depends on what the goal is. So we run summer camp for, for junior high and high school kids that have field components to, to take kids out and, and dig in the chalk. Um, and they're digging for specimens that come back to the Sternberg Museum for research and education and exhibits. And so they will do the traditional go out and they'll, they'll usually stay at a park and stay in tents. Um, but if I'm going out to just kind of remove a specimen, then it might be a series of a couple of day trips. Um, so not necessarily as extensive. So, you know, there, there's not the, the same number of people and the same maybe energy and excitement of having that base camp, but there's definite luxuries of, of maybe getting to go to your house at night um, and, and not being as remote. Are you actively digging in the formation, the Nyarbar formation? Right now? Yeah, these days. Is, or do you have enough stuff? It, it's, <laughs> it's hit or miss. So Kansas is, is really interesting compared to the Montanas and the Utahs and the Wyomings because... 99 plus percent of Kansas is privately owned. So it's no. unlike further west in the Intermontane West where you apply to the BLM for a permit and you have three months and you can do right. your digs. Um, it's liaising with the landowners. You know, there are commercial collectors out here. So some of those already have parcels of lands that they have contract for. Um you know, right. there are actually not too many other institutions, museums and universities digging out here right now. So I do have some contracts with landowners that we can go out there and we can take students and we can bring things back. Um, but a lot of it is when I get contacted by somebody, a, a landowner, a farmer, a rancher, and they found something and they right. want help digging right. it up, then I'm kind of, I start negotiating that, you know, I can help you and we can give you museum resources if you'll donate the specimen back into the museum to become part of the public trust to be used for education and, and, and exhibits and research. I do have landowners that I can go to like, hey, we want to go out and prospect and see what's out there. And then another part of it is kind of just keeping an ear to the ground and trying to build new connections or, you know, see who might have access to things and, and getting in a kind of a very different type of negotiation for access to land. Than so you're, if you're bringing applying. a lot of apple pies and bouquets of flowers <laughs> yeah. to these uh, farmers. Hey, <laughs> I'd like to go back in time, and you've been studying the WIS, which is the Western Interior Seaway, which is the great ocean 
that bisected North America. Can you please go back in time geologically? Tell us where North America was before the seaway, how the seaway began, how long it lasted, how many layers are there? Why is some of it chalk? Why is it some of it, I guess, is there limestone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, chalk is kind of a type of limestone. So uh, give us a little history of the WIS, the Western okay. Interior Seaway. So if we go back to North America, so starting, you know, by the time we get to the Cretaceous and the, the mid to late Cretaceous, which is the heyday of the seaway, Pangaea, for the most part, is broken up. So we're moving from the supercontinent that we had at the beginning of the Triassic 250 million years ago to the individual continents that we're very familiar with today on, on our globes and maps. And so North America was its own unit. And it wasn't too far off where it is now. Maybe it's like a little tilted, but, you know, it's nothing like it's moved from a pole to an equatorial type of, of geographic movement or tectonic movement. Um, so kind of in the same place in a map sense on the face of the world. But what happened during the as we get towards the end of the Mesozoic is at this point, the, the eastern side of North America is built. We've already gone through the mountain building of the Appalachians. And now with the, the separation of Pangaea, we're doing the eroding of the Appalachians that's still going today. The end of the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic is all about the building of the western side of North America. So pretty much all of the seaway is driven by the tectonics. So the movement of tectonic plates across Earth's um, upper layers. And a couple of things are different are happening. So you're beginning what we call the severe orogeny. So you have tectonic plates that are subducting. And orogeny means mountain building. Right. It's a mountain building the event. Up, so yeah. we have things hitting each other. We have a plate to the west mm -hmm. hitting the North American plate moving um, so the westward plate is moving east and the eastward plate is moving west and one has to go under the other. And so with that, a couple of things is happening. You have part of the land mountain building and then behind that mountain building, just because of the pressures and stresses evolved with the tectonics, you form a basin. And that's happening in the middle of the continent between what's the Rocky Mountains and the Apple. So the Sierras and the Rockies are building up. Right. We're Which actually is, not even to the Sierras yet. So this is the... They're, they're really recent. Yeah. yeah. And this isn't even like the Rockies that we know now. And a lot of this is to the east. So the, the seaway, you know, stretched all the way through Utah. So we're not... They're not even Colorado mountains at this point. Colorado is underwater with Kansas. And so there's all this tectonic stuff happening on the western margin of, of North America that's causing uplift in one place and then this down, this, this, this lowering of the topography... And another. Um, so that's already forming a basin that is at or below sea level. And then we see an increase in sea level. And this is two different things that are going on. We're getting, uh, we're in a greenhouse environment. Things are really, really hot. And so there are no polar ice caps. So there's no water locked up in ice. The water's all Elevated in the ocean. Elevated sea levels. Right. But that's not the only thing. So even if we melt all of our ice caps today, we're still not going to flood Kansas again. I mean, I would love to have that moisture and I'd love to have beachfront property, but... <laughs> what, are, what are you at, 2,000 feet? Where are you at right now? Yeah, so Kansas? we're about 2,300, I think. Right. Um, so there's definitely been some uplift that's happened with the after the, the Pleistocene glaciation. But another thing is affecting sea level, and that's the fact that we are rifting apart all of our continents in the breakup of Pangaea. So we have all of these underwater volcanic mountain range. So like what we have in the mid-Atlantic, we have the mid-ocean ridge, which is the rifting apart 
of the eastern side of the Atlantic from the western side of the Atlantic, and there's a huge mountain chain where new ocean crust is being formed. So when you have under, underwater mountains, that's displacing the water. Oh. So you have no glaciers, so added sea level, and then you have underwater mountain ranges, which is adding sea level, in addition to this tectonically mm. driven downdropped basin. So with this, we see water flooding in from our now Caribbean. We call it the Tethys Sea then, but this equatorial ocean. And we see water coming down from the north, from the ancient Arctic Ocean, flooding the middle of the continent. I've got a, I got one too. Yeah, I've got a, a weird kind of in my mind. So you have ocean coming in from the south and ocean coming in from the north. Is there any evidence of each tongue as as the ocean starts advancing north and the one coming south. I mean, obviously there's going to be a, a Thursday at 2 p.m. when they touch and they, mm -hmm. right? And there's some huge water joining event. Um, is there ancient lake levels of these inching south and northward um, ocean, ocean level, not lake yeah, levels. Ocean level, right? Yeah, ocean level, yeah. So so yes and no. We don't have, we do have, so going back into, you know, when this is just happening 100, 110 million years ago, when you're getting the, the northern tongue and the southern tongue getting closer and closer, we do see things like the Dakota Sandstone, so which is a beach near shore environment. So we're tracing it through the rocks. So when you go from a continental deposit that's laid down by rivers to some sort of near shore marginal marine that probably is wave action deposited underwater to then your deeper water basin. So we have to we have to use the rocks and make estimates, but a lot of these sediments that we're looking for are covered by all of the glacial deposits from, you know, the past two million years of glaciation. Right, Some of them are right. already eroded away. So there are a lot of holes that we have to fill in as well. Let me ask you this, Laura. So we have the formation of the Western Interior Seaway, which is an epicontinental sea, right? right. Which is a rarity on the planet. Well, they, they used to be more common. Right. Is there anything like it today? And then my other question would be, can you describe what well, that the Dead Sea epicontinental? Well, well, if there's one today, but also what is an epicontinental sea? And what did, what did it look like? What would, what would you know, if I was out boating, what would I experience? <laughs> well, you um, wouldn't have any petrol for your motor, I'll tell you that much. Well, no, I'd be rowing well. among the plesiosaurs, <laughs> but... Uh, um, so we don't have a modern day equivalent to the, the epicontinental seas we had in the Cretaceous and even into the early Cenozoic. So an epicontinental sea is really just a seaway, an ocean basin sitting on top of a continent. So sitting on top of continental crust versus our traditional ocean basins we think of today, which are sitting on top of, right. of ocean crust. So there are a couple of different things that are going to go with that, with one of the biggest one being depth. They're never very deep. So you're looking hmm. at the, the Western Interior Seaway, and it's probably not more than a couple hundred meters deep, even at its deepest. Really? And really? so that's just in a completely different ecosystem. I mean, not even the fact that you're dealing with marine reptiles right. versus marine right. mammals and things like that, but you have these huge basins, shallow marine. If we think about where our most productive waters are today, 
we think about the photic zone. So that is the the amount of water, the level of the depth of water that sunlight can penetrate. And that's what's driving our primary production. So all of those little photosynthetic microorganisms that are taking carbon dioxide and making oxygen that are the base of the food chain can only live where there's light. And so you have a huge amount of productivity in those upper 200 meters. And so now you're talking in an ocean basin that's only 200 meters deep. So, you know, the entire thing is probably getting some sunlight penetration. So you have these these really dynamic and high nutrient, highly um, productive ecosystems. Oh, really? You know, I'd always kind of pictured it as being sort of a kind of muddy, not very productive. But you're saying it was a really ecologically rich because of the shallow sea and this photosynthesis going on with the algae and the diatoms and... The whole food chain? Right. So, I mean, if you think about what makes up some of our formation. So I'm out here in the Niobrara limestone, and our most fossiliferous portions of that is the upper member, which is the Smoky Hill chalk. A chalk, by definition, is made up of tiny, like beyond microscopic, you have to use an SEM to see them, tiny microscopic single-celled phytoplankton. So it's essentially an Mm -hmm. algae that secretes this calcium carbonate shell around it. And so we have hundreds of meters, and as you move west, kilometers thick of these sediments that are just dead photosynthetic organisms. And what are they called? They're not coccolithophores, are they? Yeah, coccolithophores. Mm-hmm. They are. So actually the chalk rock that we see, those incredible formations, plus the new, like, what's the little Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an indication of a really rich ecosystem because that's basically the dead plankton. That's that how I interpret at. it. I mean, you have you have the, wow. the, the amount of biomass of dead photosynthetic organisms, so the base of the food chain that are making up these sediments that we have now. So that this is chalk, oh. like you get on your yeah. your blackboard, right? Mm-hmm. And they're white because it's calcium. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. It's calcium carbonate shells tests. So what is the living creature that creates oil? It's not coccolithophores, is it? It's, it can be their their dead single cellular bodies. So so that we, chalk, if it was under the right pressure and temperature for this the, the petroleum window, that could turn into oil. Mm-hmm. So really, so I mean, our carbonate shelves today. There's a you know, a lot of them are, are formed by dead foraminifera. So again, single-celled organisms, except they're heterotrophs, so they're eating organic debris versus an autotroph that's photosynthesizing its own energy. Right. Um, and then that's a single-celled organism. And when that single cell dies, its test or its shell, its calcium carbonate shell, sinks to the bottom. And so that single cell, all of those single cells and our diatoms and our radiolarians and our coccoliths and our foraminifera are the source of our oil and gas. So that's why we call them fossil fuels. It's not dead dinosaurs floating out to sea and dying. It's dead right. microorganisms. So there are also huge deposits of oysters and clams, gigantic clams. Was the sea floor covered with those? And do we have, are there corals from that time? period to Laura or what? So there, I've, I've seen some evidence of, or read about some evidence of sponges, but you weren't wrong when you said a few minutes ago that you pictured the Western Interior Seaway muddy. And especially when we're getting chalk deposits, you know, it's a very soft seafloor. So it's going to be very squishy. It's not hard. So for things like oysters that like to encrust and cement their shells to hard objects, mm-hmm. 
The only thing that they have to cement themselves onto are the clamshells, which is why we often see these big, huge, you know, dinner plate to, to man-sized diameter inoceramid clams that are just covered with these oysters because it was a very soft sediment bottom. Oh. Um, and the only hard part were these giant clams that were big enough to, you know, be able to get their feeding organs up into the up into the water column off of that soft bottom. So I kind of always imagine it. You have these mosasaurs and the plesiosaurs and the fish. They die in the water column, and then their bodies kind of sink and rain down and just kind of mush into the soft sediment and then slowly get deposited and deposited um, with more sediment on top. Huh. So if I was snorkeling, it'd be kind of murky and so planktonically rich, but basically kind of swimming in... It's just such a thick Well, wait, stew, were they fed like. from freshwater streams on the outflow from the Laramide orogeny? Um, these are probably, so in the beginning part is going to be, the, the beginning of the seaway is going to be the severe orogeny, and then the Laramide orogeny, the severe kind of shifts, part of it shifts to the Laramide orogeny. It's called severe? The severe, S-E-V-I-E-R. You're not just saying it's really triply severe. No, it's spelled differently. <laughs> okay. Um, but then it, you transition mm. because that plate that's subducting, the angle and the speed of subduction changes. So the mountain building changes. And that, that happens around maybe 70 million years ago to take us into the Cenozoic. So most of the early part of the seaway is going to be severe building further west. And then as the seaway shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, um, a lot of that's because you're now mountain building, you know, where we have our Rocky Mountains today. So the mountain building is moving eastward and sea levels dropping. Was there a time when the whole thing shriveled into one little tiny salty lake? Is that where the great salt deposits in New Orleans come from? No. The great salt dome. There's big salt deposits in uh, Kansas, the, like Hutchinson. We do. Those are, salt I, I'm pretty sure those are much older, though. Um, older, those, yeah, yeah Paleozoic. The, the salt deposits. So, so did it like dry up into this little tiny, uh, very saline lake in in the middle of uh, Nebraska somewhere? So the reconstructions that I've typically seen, you have the coming together of a north and south tongue, but then you have the separation the same way. So you're oh. drying up the middle. So you're probably drying up Kansas and Nebraska first, and then you get this retreat. So I have seen, especially when you're getting into, you know, Montana, North Dakota, Southern Canada, you know, you see a lot of reconstructions of it being a lot more brackish. So you're getting this mixing of fresh and marine water more. So the, the water chemistry is changing as it's shrinking up because you're not getting that connection between northern and southern parts. Um, so I've never seen evidence of, you know, this puddle left in the middle, but rather <laughs> that's what's drying first. And then you're retreating north and south. Cool. But the puddle in the middle. Of. Yeah, there are a lot of different reconstructions over what's driving the circulation, whether it's the marine water coming north and south, whether it's the freshwater runoff from the mountains on either side, whether it's evaporation creating highly saline water. So there's historically been this debate about whether it's brackish water, whether it's true marine water, whether it's hypersaline, so lots of salt from evaporation. And that, that, informs a lot of different circulation, ocean circulation models you see for the basin. Well, one of the things I hear, Laura, when I, we do our investigation, what, what what are these scientists all about? I've heard that you're kind of all about Mesozoic birds, is what I've heard too. And then lately, I was also looking at the uh, YouTube or a Facebook uh, video clip of you and a giant sea turtle that once swam in Kansas, Protostega. 
What are you doing with, I'm imagining these giant sea turtles just kind of gliding through this murky Niobrower Sea. What's, what are you looking at with Protostega? What's, what's going on with that creature and the Hesperorniforms? So, yes, yeah, so Hesperorniforms. Wait, are you trying to drop big, huge cormorant, flightless <laughs> bird inferences, I, Ray? I am, but uh, I circled around. I threw a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> Start with the sea turtle, then we'll get okay. to the cormorant. And then, um, wait, and I want to get to my marine reptile question yeah. after that. <laughs> okay, let's talk right. big turtles. Well, okay, so sea turtle is a marine reptile. They're reptiles. They live in the marine, but typically not what you think about when we talk about our marine reptiles. So, I mean, my research as a whole, pretty much since I started my PhD till now, so whatever that is, fifteen years or so has been Western Interior Seaway Paleoecology. And so, you know, I try to find different aspects or different angles to use to get at how the how this seaway is put together, who's eating whom, the effects of different climates and microhabitats and things like that. And so with the sea turtles, um, I like to, one of the tools that I like to use is histology. And I know you mentioned you've talked to Jack and and there are a bunch of other histologists that you've talked to. So I like to look at the microstructure of the bone to understand how these animals live their life and then any connections that I can find to their environment. And so that's kind of what set me down the sea turtle. I actually started this project years and years ago with a group of undergraduates with a, with a university grant to teach undergraduates how to do this histology research. And we chose a sea turtle um, because it was available. It was a, a cool specimen that we're getting ready to start looking at. Things really took off from there in terms hmm. of just the amount of information that's out there on modern sea turtles and then relating that to how we can use modern sea turtles and what we understand about how they grew, uh, their reproductive biology, their ecology, their metabolism, and then relate that to what we see in these, in these fossil animals. So you have great indications of comparative anatomy from the extant marine sea turtles to the protostegas. And what are you seeing in those bone microscopic slices? So what you see in modern sea turtles, there are two different growth strategies or, or two different life histories that we see. And one is our um, our leatherback sea turtle. So that's our largest mm -hmm. sea turtle. It's the soft shell sea turtle. Yep. It's thought to be its own little evolutionary group. And it grows very, very quickly. It has this spongy bone texture. So it doesn't have really solid, dense bones like we it's see. It's indicative of fast growth is spongy. It's indicative of fast growth. And then they're still alive. So we can go out and, you know, hook up things to them and take their temperatures. And we know <laughs> that leatherback sea turtles actually hold a higher metabolic rate and can have an internal body temperature that is higher than their environment. So they're not necessarily endothermic like our birds and our mammals or what we thought our, our right. non-avian dinosaurs were but they're not ectothermic, cold-blooded, like our traditional, like what we think about the rest like of our turtles iguana, and our lizards like and our snakes. Iguana. Exactly. So they, they have this, this elevated resting and active metabolism that we don't see in the rest of our sea turtles. How do they do that, though? How do they raise their temperature if they're cold-blooded reptiles? There, there are a couple of different ideas. So we use this term gigantothermy. And one of the things I found in my research is the term gigantothermy was actually coined to describe 
leatherback sea turtles and their internal body mm. temperature. And we've then, you know, put it to dinosaurs to explain, you know, endothermy or, or, or homeothermy, all of these regulated internal body temperatures for our large dinosaurs. But this was actually coined looking at our leatherback sea turtles. And so it's active swimming. So they are now they spend 90% of their lives swimming versus other sea turtles that'll just kind of hang out and float around for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So oh. active, active metabolism or active motion, um, larger body size. And then they also have Giganto. higher fat content. So they have more internal, uh, they can maintain oh. the, the energy that they produce through muscular. So they can energy motion. equals storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we was to fat. And so that increases their temperature. So, and, and then they can also do other things. Yeah. Big and fat and moving around. You're going to actually raise your internal body. Yeah. And so it's simply like by the time that they're, they're older and they're large and you have this, you know, two meter, two meter long turtle that they can hold and store enough of the own, their own em- energy that they make through motion or through eating and digesting food to right. have that elevated body temperature. Cause I mean, they go into the Arctic, they dive down really deep. So they go into these colder environments that we don't see other sea turtles. Well, you know, modern day leatherbacks basically eat jellyfish, yep. right? And do you think that's what now protostega is maybe twice the size How big of a leatherback? Well, nine feet is a protostega, right? Yes. Yeah, so is protostega it? will get so leatherbacks are maybe two meters, protostega three meters, Six and then archaeon, the really big one that we see in the later Cretaceous, is about four meters. So they're eating jellyfish in the... Probably. That's a pretty good guess. Um, Ammonites. So maybe, yeah, no, I, don't I don't know, know what, they'd... whether they'd be able uh-huh. to catch like our cephalopods, so the squid and the ammonites or the baculites, things like that. Um, That's right. You know, we obviously don't have a great jellyfish record, but we have a pretty good idea that they were around there just based on... Uh, the hmm. molecular clock data. There's no seagrass at that time, so a lot of sea turtles, especially green sea turtles, today eat seagrass, but that's not going to be an option. And then the other option would be benthic organisms, so the animals that are living at the bottom near the seafloor, so crabs, um, other crustaceans, and things like that. But I, I picture them eating jellyfish, and that might be a bias I get from paleo art. Because a lot of paleo artists draw them eating <laughs> jellyfish, so. Well, jellyfish are easy to draw. You yeah. just like put little, you know. There when they I are. was a kid, <laughs> so. when I was a kid, the Time Life book had a picture, a black and white photo of an archelon, the giant, largest extinct turtle. And I always thought, why are there gears inside? Why does it look like there's gears? And I would guess those are some sort of uh, plates that the legs and arms attach. Are they are they muscle attachments? Well, it's the bony plates yeah. on the on the shell, right? Oh, they're the basal the, the yeah. basal plates. Yeah. Turtles in general have yeah. super weird anatomy. So we think about like our shoulders and our rib cage, and our shoulders are outside of a rib cage. A turtle has its shoulders inside of its rib cage, and that's pretty trippy. And so there are all sorts of different anat- anatomical things that go on to account for the shell. But our leatherbacks and then our protostega and archelon, it's soft shell turtles. So they have this really reduced carapace, which is the back shell, and plasteron, which is the belly well, shell. What do you mean soft shell? I mean, I know a leatherback is soft shell. That's why it's called a leatherback. Because but does that mean it's more of a skin-like? So it'll have skin going between the bones. Yeah. So if you think about a typical turtle shell, it's all bone that's completely covering the back and the stomach area of the, of that typical hard-shelled turtle. 
uh, the, our protostegids as well as our, our leatherbacks, they have bones. So they have their ribs that are expanded and that will attach. And they have, you know, the, the, belly, the um, belly shell as well. But then between those bones, rather than it being all bone, between the bone is skin. And so this is going to do a lot for for weight reduction um, and help with buoyancy, especially since these are our larger sizes. And it's something that we see in both of these groups. Because the shell is a fusion, right? Isn't it like a green turtle? The evolution of a green turtle is the fusion of the ribs and the back vertebra fusing together, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are little patches of dermal bone between. But yeah, most of it is... Well, what I'm wondering... When I draw an Archelon or Protostega, should it be with the skin covering over, you know, as an artist? What would would it be like a leatherback? I would use I would use a leatherback as an as an analog for sure for looking oh, at good to know. proportions. Good to know. Oh. Is there evidence of gastroliths or any stomach contents? Or all you get is the shell? Do you get skulls and flippers? Uh, you can get some skull material, not as frequent as you see with with the shells. Um, but, but you definitely get some shell material, limb material. Um, but I've, I've never seen anything or heard of any gastrolith, um, or, or baculites or ammonite shells in the stomach. I, I haven't seen anything with stomach content preservation. That doesn't mean it's not out there. I just haven't of run course. across anything. I know that Dave's got a marine reptile, another marine reptile question, but it, we'd be remiss if we did not ask you about Hesperoniforms, Hesperonis. And you compared them, you did a study comparing them wait, to Wait, wait, just describe what a Hesperoniform is. Hesperonis, it's a, a flightless, a Cretaceous flightless bird. It's a marine bird. We, they were found in uh, Kansas since the California. late 1800s. California, I know they were in California as right. well, along the Pacific but, Coast. But uh, Hesperoniforms are, uh, actually, we're talking to one of the, the world's experts on Hesperoniforms, who could tell us more. But you compare them to modern-day penguins but back in the Cretaceous, that seaway, it was a, war, a warm world. There were no polar ice caps. Penguins migrate, but we know that Hesperoniforms, Hesperonis, was actually up in the Canadian Arctic areas. But that was an open seaway. And what were you looking at in that whole, let's look at flightless Cretaceous birds and modern-day penguins? What can we learn from? So I was using penguins as an ecological analog, and that's an important distinction to make. So Hesperonithiforms do not have any living descendants. They're actually in that sister group or one evolutionary step away from all of our modern birds. So modern birds are not a descendant of a Hesperonithiform. So I'm not using, you know, some sort of ancestor-descendant right. relationship when I'm comparing Penguins, right, but right. what we see in penguins is we see a huge diversity in body size. We see a huge diversity in the biogeography, so their distribution across the the polar or the uh, South American, the Southern Hemisphere. And so I was really using them as an ecological equivalent or analog. And what was driving mm -hmm. part of the research that I've done with those two groups was trying to get at migration. And this goes back to, you know, before I even became a PhD student, and I was just, you know, I was interviewing at University of Colorado at Boulder, where I did my, where I ended up doing my PhD, talking to Karen Chen, my, she became my PhD advisor, and this was the interview process. And we're talking about what was happening in the Arctic in the late Cretaceous, what was happening in the, the mid-latitudes. And she had been up into the, the Arctic a couple of years before, and they collected some Hesperornis or Hesperornithiform material. 
And I knew about Hesperniformes from the lower latitudes, but I didn't know up until that point that they had been found in the higher latitudes because my whole master's was Hell Creek terrestrial dinosaur land. So I was just learning about the Western Interior Seaway. Um, and that just struck me as really cool. And so we started talking about, well, is it just a really broad distribution and you just see continuous birds all the way up and down the seaway year round, or are they migrating? I mean, we're in the middle of the central flyway here and in Kansas. So we go through huge bird migrations of birds moving north to breed during the summer and then moving south to where there's, there's more nutrients in the winter. And so we started talking about that and this idea of how can we tell a migration in the fossil record? And this is something that people have been looking through, mm. through different um, just distribution. Because a migration is literally a seasonal thing. You're talking a six-month mm -hmm. time frame in, in millions of years ago. That would be almost impossible. And, and, and a lot of people studying dinosaurs, so non-avian dinosaurs, have used histology. Some have used isotopes, but many have used histology to try to come up for evidence of migration. And so they see these annual cycles as either evidence that they're going through this really uh, taxing long distance migration. And that's why you're seeing these annual cyclical rhythmic cycles. In the bone. In the bone. Yeah, sorry. In the bone, in the histology. And then some people will look at kind of the same pattern and say like, no, they're going through these cycles because they're going through a winter starvation where there's low nutrient in these high latitude environments or maybe it's even monsoonal versus drought type seasonality. Mm. And so you see the same patterns interpreted in completely different ways with nobody actually looking at what modern animals are doing. So this is where the penguins mm. came in, and I used three species of penguins all within the same genus. So they're all pygocillid penguins. It's the Adeli, the Chinstrap, and the Gentoo penguins. Because they travel from what, South Georgia to South America? Don't so they do they a... They do different things. So Gentoo penguins don't migrate. So they stay in their nesting habitats and they'll go out to sea to collect fish, but they come back and they overwinter at their nesting habitats. The chinstraps and the adelis will go on these hundred or thousand to 2000 kilometer migrations. So when Antarctica freezes over, they'll go out and they'll migrate until it's breeding season again, just, you know, going out doing their thing, catching fish and whatnot. And so I looked at migratory and non-migratory species within the same group of animals. So I wasn't looking oh. at taxonomically or evolutionary unrelated animals to see what, if anything, migration would look like in the bone growth patterns. And? And so I didn't really find evidence for migration. Are my migratory animals just grew straight through? Um, and, and they're birds, so they're, these birds are all reaching skeletal maturity within one year, so their bones are pretty much done within one year. Um, but Hesperornis was the same way. Like, we don't have any of these annual lines in Hesperornis, so we know that they're reaching adulthood within one year. Um, and there's no evidence in these uh, chinstrap and Adelie penguins that there is a sign of migration in the bone. What I saw in the Gentoo was I saw really, really, really rapid early growth. And so my conclusion there is these are our non-migratory birds. And so they have to grow really, really fast to put on a lot of weight so that they can survive winter starvation. The first winter. Yes. Ah. And so, and we actually see similar things. Um, there's There's been some studies I've seen looking at king penguins 
that do similar things. So king penguins are really unique. They don't fledge until their second year. Where's their year. habitat? The ones that they're don't Antarctica migrate? Antarctica and... Um, Antarctica. Yep. And, mm. and, and the, the sub-Antarctic islands as well. And so king penguins grow really, really, really fast their first year to reach a weight that essentially they can go through starvation without dying. And then they finish up growing their second year before they fledge and reach skeletal maturity. So they actually will lay down one of these annual rings, which is really, really cool. But in my, so I saw more evidence of not migrating than migrating in the penguins. So I took that back to the Hesperniformes where I sectioned, I looked at the histology of, of Hesperniformes, Hesperniformes from the Arctic, as well as from Kansas, and the bone looked exactly the same. So essentially, you know, my my conclusions were either they're migrating and like modern birds, we don't get any indication of this annual migration in their bone or just the temperature gradient wasn't big enough between Kansas and the Arctic Circle to force any sort of starvation or bone growth. But really, well, it was pretty warm back then. It was. It was warm, but. But those birds in the north would have had six months mm-hmm. of darkness. So they still have the shutdown of the ecosystem, the, the dark and light photo periods. But, you know, the biggest take home, I think, from that study is like, let's not overinterpret things, especially without ground truthing them in animals wow. where we can go out and make observations. So that's what I'm doing to get back to the protostega. I like that approach. Like so much of this work with the protostega is based on what modern sea turtles are doing. So I can say, one group of sea turtles is doing this with their life and their bone looks like this. This group of sea turtles is doing this and their bone looks like that. So when I cut open a protostega and it looks just like a leatherback, that gives me a little bit more indication or a little bit more support for a conclusion regarding how that protostega may have been living its life. Cool. cool. All right, marine reptile. Well, marine <laughs> giant reptiles, my question. So I really didn't understand until talking to you today that it was really a shallow sea and a very productive ecosystem, a marine ecosystem. Well, that would give the opportunity for all these terrestrial reptile to turn into, to evolve into a marine reptile. However, the age of the sea is way after the first tylosaurs and mosasaurs and the first giant marine reptiles, correct? Um, yeah, so there are there are definitely marine reptiles before we get the Western Interior Seaway. So the question is, did they arrive and populate, or was there a co-evolution, or sorry, was there an original evolution of a terrestrial marine reptile becoming, sorry, a terrestrial reptile becoming a marine reptile in the Western Interior Seaway? I think your question is, did the Western Interior Seaway help drive marine reptile evolution? Yes, that's like, thank you. I think that's what he's trying to say. (laughs) Thank you, Ray. And and there are two different ways to answer that question. I'm trying to rack my brain and, you know, you'll probably get comments telling me about how wrong I am, which is fine. I can't off the top of my head, (laughs) thinking of a major clade, so a major group of organism that originated in the seaway. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, just thinking out loud from what I know about marine reptiles, but mosasaurs had already evolved as the Western mm-hmm. Superior Seaway uh, formed, but it certainly was ideal right. for them because they're, they are the dominant plus these big fish. Oh, what are you holding there, that, Ray? But 
I want. I'm holding okay, his. Okay. Well, you know what? I think this is here. time for a screenshot. Okay, but I do have a question about this. But you want to do yeah, a let's screenshot? Yeah, let's do a screenshot. Yeah. Okay. I will hold. Uh, what, what do you have? Don't you have? Did you tell us you have a Jurassic Park Barbie? Oh, I have paleontology Barbie. Paleontology Barbie. Why don't you so put it? There she is. And I have a Nikea from uh, the uh, Green River Formation. So screenshot. Okay, screenshot. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. Done. Okay. So here's my Zephactinus question. This is a Zephactinus uh, uh, that uh, Chuck Give us Bonner the facts gave. on that Zephactinus, Ray. Oh, man. The facts on the Zephactinus, the Zephactinus facts, that's fun to say. X-Fish, also known as. Uh, I got this uh, digging with Chuck Bonner. That way, Bonner that's a real one? In, uh, yeah, it's an actual bone. Oh, and that's a very so gnarly looking actually, protruding front tooth there. A lower. I'm holding it upside down. I believe this is the upper jaw bit. But my question is, you you are running a, a lab where you have undergrads and you have grad students and you, that's going to be a challenge, uh, you know, establishing and running a lab. But I noticed in some of your students, one of your students is working or had did a paper on comparing a Zephactinus and a modern day tarpon. And uh, I think that's just brilliant because if you look at them, at those two fish, they look almost exactly alike. And in a way, too, a protospirena looks exactly like a swordfish, but there's a big Wait, difference a between a those proto... creatures. Protospirena, which is basically the marlin, looks like a marlin, looks like really? a modern-day marlin a or a swordfish. Yes, the whole thing. And just like a Zephactinus and a tarpon, they look alike, but the same difference is their Zephactinus and a protospirena have huge teeth. And your student was looking at Zephactinus and tarpon. They look alike. They're not really related other than they're bony fish, but... What was your student looking at there? So he was looking at convergent evolution. So this idea that yeah. two different lineages converge or meet up on the same morphology. And a lot of times that can be related to their role in the ecosystem. So what they're eating, how they're eating, things like that. And so he was looking at 3D reconstructions and 2D reconstructions of all the bones in the skull of both the Zyphactinus and the Tarpon to look at similarities and differences and how they would relate to function, how the mouth would open, the feeding mechanisms, to see if they were truly convergent and acting in the same way and, and filling the same role in the ecosystem. And and, and so it, and? Uh, he found that, you know, there there are enough differences that it's it's not a perfect it's not a perfect analog and but that the teeth are so different and massive these effective yeah, the teeth, teeth are very are different but daggers. Yeah they're they're different in the teeth. They're also different, I mean, with our bulk of our bony marine fish today. They're just advances that we see in our modern taxa that have to do with suction feeding and all the jaw mechanics of opening your mouth really wide so that the food gets sucked in. And that's a main feeding mechanism of most of our fish today. They don't have these big these big dagger teeth like we see within Xyphactinus or Encodus or some of these um, Ichthyodectes, some of these other ones. And so there are a bunch of functional things that are different that are going to relate to their eating different things because of that. So not necessarily filling the same role in the ecosystem because they're not going to be feeding in the same way. I think what you're getting at here, and pardon the pun here, but <laughs> you're saying that modern 
modern day fish suck. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> they do. <laughs> they suck the food in. If you have a goldfish, just watch it. Like you put the flakes at the top and it gets those flakes in its mouth by just opening its mouth really fast. It creates a negative, negative uh, a vacuum, a negative pressure so that the water rushes into its mouth and brings the food with it. And then the water just goes out the gills so, and the food goes on the throat. Well, I mean, that really is kind of cool. I mean, you think that modern day have this, they do suck. And mm-hmm. then back in the Cretaceous, there is this really vicious yeah, thing there's going this on huge- with Teeth, huge thing. teeth and, got, and it's bloody and it's there's this whole was there just a lot of meat eating there. back then or was it like I, to crush ammonites my my favorite description i struggle on where i first read it because i really want to give credit but i can't remember off the top of my head and they called um the western interior seaway hell's aquarium and that's just my favorite image because everything is huge and big teeth. And oh, there man. obviously had to be babies and small things, but we just don't have a good fossil record of anything small from the seaway. Like we don't have a whole bunch of small fish. Um, and I love so, Hell's Aquarium. Yeah. That is so cool. So I've, you, I, you've just created an <laughs> image in my head that I must do now. But And I did a little drawing, the, the Wicked Fish of the West, you know. Ah. And actually, you know, I left, I left a big couple of big paintings are they still at the sternberg there on the wall i, I did some wall painting and did as a fact that it's in a prose fight right you now. did um oh gosh i haven't been in our galleries in so long um, oh i hope they haven't painted them over i don't i don't think so i'm pretty sure because i really wanted some of them to keep because oh they're... well yeah i think they were painted over with the make america great again ray <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to ask your questions, Ray? This has been fun, and and uh, I've got such a great picture of the WIS, as you call it. Yeah, no, it's it's been a real blast. Actually, you know, before I ask my one question, when we were emailing back and forth about this interview today, you were talking about some of the challenges that you yourself face. Uh, you're a woman and working in paleontology. You're running a lab. You're a mother. Mm-hmm. I am. You got a couple kids. I have a four-year-old. And you you have a job. Well, that's a that's a huge. Uh, my kids are grown and gone, but I kind of know what that's like being a parent. Well, I do know what that's like. But you work in a, a museum setting, a university setting. You're teaching and you're doing research. How do you balance all of that? I mean, one day in the lab yeah, and one day teaching. Woman. And no, it's it's difficult. And you know, you kind of have to throw that notion. And we're all like, especially as as women in science and women with with careers, we're we're taught this mentality of you can have it all. And this is my little soap, my my soapbox um pet peeve is and honestly, you can't and you shouldn't have that image that you can do anything and nothing's going to get sacrificed because there are going to be sacrifices in every decision that you make. You know, I made the decision to have a family, both a husband and a child. And so, yeah, my my research output is going to be less than that because my kid's sick. You know, I have to take a sick day due too sometimes and you know, when I was pregnant and I didn't want to deal with, with chemicals every day, I changed my research agenda a little bit to deal with that. The institution where I am is very much a teaching-focused institution. We're really focused on, you know, the high-quality classroom education as well as student research experiences. So we have really high teaching loads. That kind of sets the standards that students come first. So, Laura, if you could time travel, go back in time to any period of time that you want, what time period would you go to and what would you want to see? 
Um, I mean, I, I think at this point, with as much time as I've invested in my career into the Western Interior Seaway, it's obvious. I, I would definitely go to see that. If I had to pick one place, I don't know. Like, I would want to see Kansas, and I would want to see the Arctic, because I have spent a lot of time thinking about how ecosystems change with latitude, and then how different the climate was in the Cretaceous versus today. So you have completely different latitudinal gradients. So I'd be very interested in that. But, you know, kind of what Dave was talking about, like, why does everything have big teeth? You know, what was going on in those ecosystems? And Ray, what you're talking about with, you know, was it mucky? Was it mur- was it was it muddy? Um, how far did the light penetrate? Was it was it freshwater driven? Was it was it hypersaline water and evaporation driven? So I, I'd really want to look at how the ecosystems functioned than any specific animal. So you've got 20 minutes of swimming around. What creature do you want to see? Uh, you can only see one. You can only see one. It'll probably be the mosasaur that eats me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe That's that great. way, as long as I get eaten head first, then it'll maybe yeah. be less painful, but I can see it coming so I can observe it. Yeah, they make a great fossil, you know, sort of in the jaw. Well, I can, I can, I can see all the all the um, palatal teeth and things like that. So, oh, so that's what it's <laughs> Do like. Do they have the forked tongue? Do they not? Uh. That's a, I've always wondered about that because you know modern day Komodo dragons, right? Mm-hmm. Have got the. the I'm going to say so I'm going to say that's it. a terrestrial thing, and that they would have evolved yeah. a, a. It's a temperature thing, isn't it? No, I thought no, it was a scent. So it's everything. It's, it's temperature and it's chemical identification. I think part of it is going to be whether that evolved before or after Mosasaurus transitioned to water and whether there's then a selective pressure for the loss of the forked tongue or if it's just neutral so it hung around or if it's a disadvantage so it went away. Well, I've got a question. Does an iguana have a forked tongue? No. They're land. And then the marine iguanas don't. But, yeah, but, yeah, but, okay. but what's the Mosasaur? This question. is a pretty big debate right now. But she gave you a very, <laughs> yeah. yeah, she gave a very good scientific yeah, answer. It, but it you know, Dave wants to wrap it up with a but heavy wait, question. But, but that Mosasaur tongue, I'll bet you that would be awesome uh, eating. I was, yeah. Mm. It's very important to eat your study group, so I fully support that. <laughs> you don't want to eat turtles, though. Well, yeah. I got after after I posted that video for Darwin Day talking a little bit about my protostega research. I think it was on Instagram. I got a question about what wine to pair with protostega. So <laughs> I, I do think about these things a lot. <laughs> I did eat green turtle meat. It was white meat, right? It was in the Great Barrier Reef. And it's pretty delicate. And it should probably be paired with a very nice, like, white wine. Some of the finest ever. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it was a endangered, but it was dead, but freshly killed. Oh. Anyway, they eat grass, so you know they're yeah. going to taste yummy. Grass eaters typically mm. taste good. Uh, what, what, Ray? What are you judging me? <laughs> oh, I gave one of the first you talks. Ate? One of the first talks I gave at Fort Hayes State after I was hired. So the paperwork was done, but I gave a colloquium talk on what wine to pair with Hesperornis. So I had like a whole phylogeny <laughs> cladogram. Oh wow! Yeah. I bet you they'd be great for, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, but probably a little fishy tasting, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I, tr- I try to pull in the the comparative to modern, and the penguins, for example, are contraband. Like, their meat is contraband. So I had to go back to, like, old whaling journals to figure out, oh. like, descriptions of of penguin meat. So it took a little digging. And... 
Uh, is it tasty? It was, Penguin meat? I'm curious. I, I read one description that compared it to seal. Um, I did go mm. up to the Arctic to do field work. Oily. And we had some seal up there, and I did not care for it. It's very dark, like on this purple meat, um, because it's very oxygen-rich. That typically also means it's gamier. It does taste like fish. Um, so I, you know, I had Chase, Chase Your Hesperonis with a shot of tequila group. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, so... We're living in these crazy times where social media is pretty much spreading lies and people are believing them without even checking sources. What is the craziest thing someone that you've encountered, whether it be a friend, family, patron, visitor, what's the craziest thing someone said is real that you just know isn't? And how did you give them the scientific answer and did they buy it? And, and, you know, we could go down the evolution religion, but I don't mm -hmm. want to really go there. But I was going to say, that's the first thing that pops into my mind, because oh, that's sure. kind of... Why not? Tell me well, tell me what you, you heard, and how did you uh, counter it? So, for the most part, I haven't had a huge issue, especially with people being confrontational, um, which, you know, is, is really nice um, and, and a little bit surprising for where I am in the country, and especially in a rural area. But, you know, I've had people being like, oh, thanks for your time. Great spiel. I don't believe anything you said. And then, you know, they really? go about their business. Uh, yeah. They'll say that? Yeah, they're like, I, I, I don't <laughs> accept what you think, but thank you for your time and, and, you know, for talking to us. So I've had that, you know, once or twice in passing. But again, nothing aggressive or confrontational. Um, the same video that's been brought up a couple of times that was posted just a couple of weeks ago for Darwin Day about the turtles we actually did get a creationist poster on that that was going back and forth with the, well, you're talking about evolution. You have to give equal time to creation. So, you know, it's a valid hypothesis. You have to talk about both. And at that point, you know, we might, I don't want to say combat, but my reaction to that is to start with what is science? Because the breakdown in the whole science and religion debate is people just don't understand what science is and how it differentiates from non-science. So, you know, science is a process, is gathering evidence, and is testable. But the key is that it's testable based with evidence from the natural world. And any sort of religion, by definition, is supernatural. So, like, the, the yeah. two worlds don't even intersect with each other in terms of the definition. Yeah, religion is tested by somebody's experience, faith, or human writings. Yeah, so, I mean, you're going about asking and answering questions in completely different ways. And yes, creationism, whether it's a Judeo-Christian, I mean, every religion has a creation myth that goes with it. So, whichever one you're looking at, it is an explanation for origin of life, origin of species, but it's not a scientific explanation because it doesn't based on testing evidence gathered from the natural world. And so, you know, my response to this poster was, you know, like, yes, creationism is an explanation. It's not a scientific explanation. This is why. And we are a natural history science museum. So we're just focusing on teaching science. Um, Great. And then there's the back and forth. And it's just the same questions over and over again, you know, like why do humans and chimpanzees both exist? And this idea of right. if humans are monkeys, right. then why are monkeys and humans still around? And just the breakdown of the difference <laughs> yeah. between oh, yeah. an ancestor yeah. and a relative. Why don't that... you watch a Jane Goodall documentary? 
Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a lot of the same questions mm, because this is just right. the rhetoric of, of that mindset and the same arguments. But I like that science is testable. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, you know, when you engage in those discussions, you still, you know, you need to have respect for the people that you're talking to and, you know, be a dispassionate scientist and, and engage in a, it can be a bit of a spiral back and forth, but there's a point where you just say, here's the evidence right. and it's testable evidence. And someone's coming at you with something that's maybe not testable. I think the fossils are kind of irrefutable evidence. But anyways, thank you so much for joining us today here on Paleo Nerds. It sounds like you've got a lot of exciting things going on uh, there in Kansas. I'm hoping that I'll be able to get back to Kansas this fall. And this time uh, when I come to the Sternberg, I'll uh, have some proper time with you and get to hang out and talk more about what you're up to. That'd be awesome. I was also, when you were here, I was I was stepping in as department chair for geosciences, so... All my time was spent over at the department as well. So that was another reason why I didn't get to spend any time with you. Well, I'll call ahead okay, and make perfect. an appointment. <laughs> okay. Laura, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Paleo Nerds. Oh, this was great. So much fun. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, see you all later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. See you, Laura. Bye. Well, Dave, that was fun. As always, man. Yeah, that was great. And I just love the way in my mind's eye I can picture this shallow sea. I, I never thought it was as shallow as she said, 600 feet. You know, these scientists, they always speak in meters, and I'm always having to translate Dude, it. Into... I am so mad at our country for I... being like the only one on the planet that has this ridiculous... I I mean, England, England is pretty much both. They're meters. I'm old enough to remember actually when there was a debate about this. Should we switch? Remember in the 70s? Yeah, it was in the 70s. It was during the oil embargo in the 70s. And there was a move. Let's get to where the rest of the world. Did you know that every single street sign had everything in miles and meters and kilometers? Back when? Back in the 70s, every single street sign across the country. Right? They were getting us ready for it. Yeah, they were getting us ready for it. And what did us Americans do? We want to be uh, Americans. We want to be Americans and be stupid. Or because maybe. Remind me, well, this is true. The meter, <laughs> all right, is based on the actual size of planet Earth. If you were to take a line from the equator to the pole, that's one million meters. Really? Okay, I'm kind of right there. The measure of distance, the meter, is one 10 millionth of the distance between the North Pole and the equator. So it's only off by 999,000. So a meter is based on something physical, something where you and I are sitting on right now, where a mile is from some English king who decided to take four hams and lay them in a row or whatever. And it's the same thing with centigrade and Fahrenheit. Centigrade, a beautiful thing. Water freezes at zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's hey, pretty awesome. But we were back in the uh, Western Interior Seaway, and actually, you know what? I mean, really, uh, thanks to Laura, I have a much better mental picture now of what that vast seaway, the Epicontinental Seaway, was like. And I could imagine myself swimming in it. And, I re- and those chalk formations now, I think of them as like such rich planktonic deposits that are all over right. Western Kansas and. Uh, you know, throughout the Midwest. But all those formations are basically Western Interior Seaway ocean bottoms, yeah, right? Yeah, 
And when you're out in some of these, it's like walking on the ocean bottom because there's these, these giant clamshells everywhere, you know, and there's layers and layers of and it. And how thick is it again? What's the thickest? Oh, I think we could go to Wikipedia for that. I don't know off the top <laughs> of my head, dude. Dude, I go to you for these type of nodules. Uh, but Laura of would know that. Dr. Wilson would be able to tell uh, several us. Several thousand feet, if I'm just going to be very loose about I think loose about we could say it. hundreds easily. <laughs> <laughs> the average depth of the Western Interior Seaway was around 600 feet or 200 meters, but it did get as deep as 3,000 feet or 900 meters deep. Still, that's a very shallow in terms of a sea. But uh, it was good talking to Laura, and then uh, I was I was glad too that we asked her about you know all the different aspects of her job, her livelihood, and. She really wants to do more research. That's crazy. Yep. She has a lab, yep. which means she has funding for it. And she's always got to be funding, funding, funding for that. And oh. I'm sure that's a <laughs> that's a job in itself. So, yeah. hey, Dave, right. it's a sunny day here in K Town. It looks like yeah. more bad weather coming. So you know what I'm going to do? As usual, I'm going to eat I'm lunch. I'm going to go talk to your ravens, right? And I'm going to talk to them. They they rule my life now. And you people who are listening, uh, thank you so much. Our podcast is growing thanks to you. If you have any questions. You want to uh, have us interview or talk to any specialists out there in the paleo world? Please let us know on our Facebook. Yeah, or, you know what? We, uh, on our I, website. We, we could use some more Facebook likes. I want some more Facebook likes. You know, just go to our Facebook page and, and like and can us. Can I say something, Ray? You know, you and Karina are web admin, and you two are related. You guys are do we? most of the work. I do the editing of these podcasts. I edit, I put in all the sound effects, and and I'll take out when I say uh 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 uh. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I will, I'll leave that in so you can hear what gets usually taken out. Um, uh, How Dave interrupts the flow of the conversation. Yeah, I am really impressed with the pages you put together for these guests. They are beautiful. The photos, the links, the way they're laid out. Karina's fantastic writing ability. She she talks as though she's singing it, if you know what that means. I mean, yeah, yeah, it yeah. sings, it sings. And so That's my and your artwork, you actually draw... Uh, and create artwork for our guests in these episodes. I've been I'm doing just... some more of that. Actually, when I'm when I'm truly inspired, when I hear a phrase, and that's a lot of how my artwork Like works. today, you heard the phrase of what was it? I heard Hell's Aquarium. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. just immediately, oh my God, I have to... I have to draw that now. God yeah. darn it. That, but that might take a little while to draw, that one. I want to fill it with devils and skulls and Davy Jones's locker and David Strassman and and Chuck. Chuck is going to be in. I can see Stop him on Mosasaurs. And all right, I'm sorry, Dave. I was yeah. off. I, you know, I want to see. I want to see one of those fish boils. I, have you ever seen a real fish boil in the tropics? Well, you've oh. seen them in Alaska. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the fish boils in Alaska are more herring-like, but in the tropics, it is the biggest fish eating the littler fish eating the littler fish. It's literally. It is a meat. Well, you know, are you talking about when panic ensues underwater and suddenly fish are leaping out of the water? Because I'm talking about a fish boil where you have the uh, sharks and the tuna and the mackerel and the giant trevally all eating all the bait fish. And I it's think just we call that crazy. a feeding, feeding frenzy. Feeding frenzy? Maybe yeah, you call okay. it a fish boil. I, I call imagine. it a fish boil in Australia, right? It's yeah, a fish boil. A fish boil. Yeah, it's a feeding frenzy. Yeah, so why don't you paint the Hell's Feeding Frenzy Fish Boil in the WIS? Hell's Aquarium, man. I'll just have to draw it. Yeah, all right. Have a good one. The saying goodbye. 
from Ojai, California. From Ketchikan. See you later, man. Next week. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.